0: Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. So today I'm going to do gastroenteritis. I know it's not like a super fun topic. It's like something we see all the time, but I just kind of wanted to talk about like some of the things that we don't think about with gastroenteritis and what the client also observes as well. And then next week, I think I'm going to be doing um, like post anesthesia care, like what to do when your patient is waking up and why it's super important to keep them warm. I also just want to mention real quick that I'm going to try a different platform. So I'm going to try something that kind of allows you to be able to listen to this on your Spotify or on your Apple podcasts or on Google podcasts so that it makes it maybe a little bit easier. That way you don't have to sign in all the time and it just like goes directly into your feed and you don't have to think about it. It's just there. So if anybody has like Suggestions for me, feedback um, after I do it, let me know so that way I kind of know that it works for everybody. All right. All right. So let's get into gastroenteritis. So, gastro means stomach, enter, E N T R, is intestines, and then itis is inflammation. So, we have inflammation of the stomach and the intestines. That's what gastroenteritis is. Now, if you walked into a human doctor and you said, I'm vomiting, have diarrhea, lack of an appetite. They're probably going to tell you that you have a stomach bug or you have a um stomach flu. So some of the important things to know for with like differences between human medicine and animal medicine, veterinary medicine, is that people don't want you to just say that it's a stomach flu because if I was to tell somebody that their dog had a stomach flu, they'd be like, "Well, But I need a reason. I need a reason for why this happened. So the stomach flu isn't a real thing. It just literally means gastroenteritis. It just means that there's something that's affecting their stomach and their intestines. You know, people don't question when they go into a doctor's office and they tell them it's a stomach flu. They're not like, oh, well, tell me exactly what caused this stomach flu. Because there really could be a thousand causes. That doctor doesn't know that. But when you look at your um your diagnosis, it will say gastroenteritis, not stomach flu, because stomach flu is not a real thing. There's not like a disease that is stomach flu. But that's what people think about, right? They're like, well, I went into my vet hospital and they couldn't even tell me what it was. But that's the same thing when they go into the human hospital or the human doctor, is they don't understand that when somebody tells them they have the stomach flu, they have not diagnosed them with anything. They've literally diagnosed them with a non-existent condition. It's just gastroenteritis, which can be caused by thousands of different things. Stomach flu is not like a specific bacteria or a specific virus. So it's really important for them to kind of understand that, you know, if they have vomiting and diarrhea and we diagnose with them with gastroenteritis, that is because there are thousands of things that can cause it, just like when they go into their human hospital. So what are the symptoms that we normally see with gastroenteritis? So they might call up, talk to April and be like, hey, my dog is having vomiting, diarrhea, or maybe just one of them or both of them. Doesn't matter. Sometimes they can even have blood in their vomit or in their stool. And we can sometimes diagnose that as something called HGE or hemorrhagic gastroenteritis. The other name that you might see it under is going to be acute hemorrhagic diarrhea syndrome or AHDS. So it's just blood that's in the, like, quite a lot of blood that's in the stool. But there's two types of gastroenteritis. Typically, it's going to be things like an acute gastroenteritis, meaning that it comes on very quickly and it goes away very quickly. Sometimes even without us doing anything, it'll just go away just with a bland diet. It could also be chronic, so meaning that's over weeks or months or years that this could be over. And some of the classic signs for all of these, just not just that what the owner is seeing, but just what we see as well, could be like watery diarrhea, mucusy diarrhea, black tarry stools. That one is super important if they say that there's tarry black stools to get them in immediately. It could be that there's blood that's in the feces. They could be really lethargic, maybe even restless. Because their stomach hurts, and think about like how they have to lay down on the ground, it pushes on their stomach, and that's really painful. Uh, they could have nausea. Some of the things that the owner might describe is that they're licking their lips a lot, or drooling, or even just swallowing frequently. All of those are signs of nausea. They could have vomiting and inappetence. Some of the potential causes, like there are thousands of things that can cause gastroenteritis. So you know, again, when somebody asks us like what is it that caused this? We just don't know sometimes. But some of the most common things are going to be like ingesting spoiled food or raw food if they're not used to a raw food diet. It could be from ingesting non-food items, you know, like ribbons and and rocks and all sorts of other things that cause foreign bodies. It could be that they've ingested some sort of toxin. So mushrooms are a very common thing that's out here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, it could be even things like something that was in rabbit stool, deer stool, things like that, that could be a potential toxin for them. Viruses are another big one. I know we we do a lot of parvo tests. So virus, a parvovirus is considered a gastroenteritis. Distemper is considered a gastroenteritis as well. Things like coronavirus, which is not the same coronavirus that we worry about with COVID, but a different type of coronavirus. But coronavirus can cause gastroenteritis. Parasites like giardia, coccidia, roundworms, all of those can cause it. And then changes in food. So that's why we're always asking the owners, like, was there a recent diet change or a recent treat that you gave that you'd you never given before or a bone that you'd given? Because sometimes even just like changing their food will change their intestinal flora. So we always have good bacteria and bad bacteria in the GI system. What is supposed to happen is that the good bacteria overgrows the bad bacteria and helps us to be able to digest. But if we change the food too quickly, then it can actually cause the bad bacteria to overgrow, causing us to then have this upset stomach from it. This can also be from when we feed people food, even though um, you know, it's not maybe something that they normally get. It could be that it's something that they was fattier than they normally do get, or we've just gotten it so much that the bad bacteria is overgrowing the good bacteria. It can also be from food allergies or food sensitivities. There are definitely a lot of dogs that are allergic to things like chicken and beef and anything related to it. So even like duck or turkey or bison. It could be from ulcers, so we had talked about just a little bit ago if they have a dark, tarry stool to bring them in immediately because a stomach ulcer will actually show up as blood that's black or already digested in their stool. And So if we see black, tarry stools, we need to get them in immediately so that that way we can start treating for it before it causes an ulcer all the way through the stomach. It could be from liver or kidney disease, So even though that is a disease, something is causing it. The kidneys are a problem or the liver is a problem. The kidneys and the liver always help get rid of waste in your system. And if it's not functioning correctly, then it will cause a gastroenteritis. So even though, like I said, there's an underlying problem, the kidneys or the liver, it's still causing the gastroenteritis. could be from foreign bodies. So that's not just a full foreign body. It's not just something that's completely obstructing them. It could be from a partial foreign body as well. So if you think about like a piece of cloth or something, if food can move around it or through it, then it's only going to be causing a partial obstruction, not the entire thing that's obstructed. It could also be from genetic diseases, so like there are certain diseases that actually can cause them to like not move through food through their stomach or intestines. It's a super sad disease, but it's basically like where the um, nerves of the stomach and intestines stop working so that nothing can move through. It can even be from like liver shunts, liver, where there's blood going around the liver, not through the liver like it should, that can cause this. Or things like Addison's disease, metabolic diseases, meaning that it's something that's, like with Addison's disease, I think I've already covered this in another podcast, but basically the adrenal glands do not work. And the adrenal glands sit right next to the kidneys. They're supposed to produce a steroid. And if they aren't producing that steroid, the steroids are needed for every cell in your body. And the first signs of it are gastroenteritis. They'll have vomiting and diarrhea. So typically like people ask like when should I bring them in? You know maybe they go they call Ashley and they're like hey my dog has been vomiting, vomited once. Do I bring them in for that? Think about you as a person, right? When you get a stomach bug, right? How often do you go into the doctor? Not not that often, right? Like usually you're able to get over it on your own. And so sometimes people get really upset like some of the technicians or the receptionists get upset because they didn't bring them in right away. But just think about the fact that you wouldn't go in right away. Like you vomit, you don't go immediately to urgent care. You know, if there are certain symptoms that you're seeing that you're like, yeah, there's definitely like, I think that there's something much bigger that's going on. Then absolutely, you're going to go into urgent care. But for most people, you know, if they have their dog vomited one time, and it's fine after that, it's eating, pooping normally, then it's probably not something that has to come in. If it's a dog that's having chronic diarrhea, then maybe it's something that can be seen on urgent care, not necessarily have to come into the ER. You know, But let's say it's something that's been going on for a while, or it's been something that they've been vomiting for over 24 hours or profusely vomiting, then yeah, those are the things that we want to have brought in. Puppies and kittens, they can become dehydrated really quickly, so we do want those to come in as well. Older dogs and cats, the chances of them having a foreign body or something that's going to be, you know, like they just ate something that upset their stomach is lower. The chances of them having some sort of kidney problem or liver problem are much higher. So we actually want those to come in as well. Things that cause them to have bloody vomit or bloody stool we worry about too. Sometimes it's just the irritation of the lining of the colon or the lining of your esophagus that's causing that blood in the vomit or in the stool. But the bigger thing we worry about is do they have some sort of bleeding problem? So any of those things we kind of want brought in pretty immediately. Some of the things that diagnostics that are going to be done are usually going to be Fecals, so ask them to bring a fecal sample in when they come in, if possible. Sometimes by the time they get to us, there's no feces that's left in there, so there's nothing for us to to run testing on. Blood work, we're usually going to be looking for their liver values, their kidney values, their pancreas. We want to see if their white blood cell count is okay, and their red blood cell count. We'll also look for things that are consistent with things like Addison's disease. Or maybe even salmon poisoning, we're going to look at platelets on the blood work for those things. And then next is x-rays, so radiographs. Usually we're going to be looking for things like foreign bodies or obstructions or even masses that might be in the stomach or intestines. Those are a little bit harder to see, so sometimes we're going to look on ultrasound instead for those kind of things. But it's really important to kind of know like why are we doing these things so when we go over estimates and stuff, so that you're able to tell people, oh, the reason why they want to do blood work is because we always have to worry about things like your pancreas and the kidney levels. Um, so maybe we're looking for platelets. You know, These are the things that are important to rule out for gastroenteritis. If there's blood in the stool or blood in the vomit, we might run clotting times to make sure that those are okay. And then in chronic cases, we might do things like sending out a diarrhea panel. Um, usually that means we have to get a, a large amount of feces to be able to send out for those. And then things like a vitamin B panel, which is blood work. We're looking to see if there's an imbalance in their vitamin B. That can sometimes actually lead to a gastroenteritis as well. And then sending out a fecal too. Ideally, they want to look at it in-house to see if there's anything we can fix right now so we can do a dewormer. But otherwise, we have to send it out to the lab so that they that way they can do PCR testing for Giardia since Giardia can sometimes be really hard to see. And then how do we manage this? Now, let's say they call in and like I said, they talk to Ashley and they say, hey, my dog head is having diarrhea, no vomiting, eating just fine. Um, is there anything I can do at home? Yeah, absolutely. They can do a bland diet. So I generally recommend chicken and rice. No uh, skin, no bones, no seasoning, no butter, no oil, nothing. And they got to boil it. Don't bake it. Or even barbecue it. There's still a lot of spices that are on your barbecue. So just boil it. They can even go to the canned tuna aisle and in there there's usually a canned chicken. Just make sure it's the one that's in water that they get and not the one that's in oil. They can do that with White rice or brown rice, doesn't matter which one, as long as it's boiled again. Sometimes when a dog or cat is on special food, like let's say they're on a urinary food or have a lot of food allergies, I tell people just keep them on their own food and just make sure that they are not getting anything else. You know, no table scraps or anything. If a dog is really sensitive to chicken but is okay with other things, you can try doing things like ground pork or ground lamb and just boil them again. That's fine. And then they can also do probiotics. You can pick that up at pretty much any pet store and give them probiotics and just explaining that it helps our good bacteria overgrow the bad bacteria. And that's fine as well. If they're coming in to the hospital though, and we're doing things like diagnostics and stuff, or maybe if we don't even do diagnostics, Maybe we would talk to them and we determine that it's probably just going to be like some food that they ate or somebody gave them something they weren't supposed to. Then we're going to treat them symptomatically if we don't find anything else, which usually means that we're going to give them an anti-emetic. So typically that's going to be serenia, right? It helps stop nausea. And then we'll also talk to them about doing a bland diet. And if they don't want to do cooking at home, then generally we'll send home a canned food So typically, Hills ID is a good one. Uh, Royal Canin Gastrointestinal is a good one. Or sometimes even people specifically ask if they can get Purina. So then I'll write a prescription for sensitive digestion if that's the case. Other things are going to be probiotics. So we'll give them probiotics there or tell them to go get probiotics at the pet store, depending on whether we have them or not. But probiotics, again, are good to try to help the Good bacteria overgrow that bad bacteria. You might even do some fluids under the skin, so sub Q fluids. And that or the kind of important things about sub Q fluids is to talk to them about how it's going to slowly absorb in the body, and because of gravity, it might start out as this camel hump on the back between the shoulders, but will may eventually go fall down onto the shoulders or even on the chest. So some people get worried because they say like there is a bump there the next day and I don't know what happened, but it's actually just the fluids that have gone down. Sometimes we'll also give medications. So this is kind of a controversial thing because they've put out a paper recently saying that they think that metronidazole, which we use for diarrhea as an antibiotic, is could potentially be more detrimental than just doing a bland diet and probiotics. So In some cases, we're going to give metronidazole when it's been going on for a long period of time. They've tried a bland diet already. Then usually, yes, we're going to give metronidazole. But there is a push more now for not using metronidazole. Because think about what metronidazole does. We are giving an antibiotic, which doesn't just kill bad bacteria. Like it can't just kill bad bacteria. It also kills some good bacteria as well. So ideally, I want to try not to do metronidazole as a first line of defense. And then just talking to people too about like hospitalization, you know, if they're really bad and we're trying to find like, let's see, maybe there is a foreign body or maybe there is some sort of um, really bad pancreatitis or a really bad infection or kidney problem or salmon disease, you know, then we're going to probably hospitalize them if that's the case. Otherwise, it's also talking to people about prevention, you know, making sure that they have their food in a locked trash can or a trash can that the dog can't get into. So many people I know will be like, well, they can't knock over the trash can. They're really too small. I'm like, no, they can knock over the trash can. They just can't get their, their head into the top of it, but they can still knock a trash can over for sure, especially if it's not full. So, Ideally, a locked trash can or somewhere like under a sink behind a cabinet or something that they can't get into. talking them about switching the diet over slowly so making sure they're doing that over a couple day time period, not just a very fast switchover because that creates the bacteria that the bad bacteria that overgrews that good bacteria. And then no table scraps Talking to them about, you know, the dangers of table scraps causing things like pancreatitis. We want to make sure that we try to keep them as safe as possible by trying not to feed fatty foods, fatty bones, things like that. You know, if they want to give green beans or carrots or something, great. You know, that's usually okay. But it's just the fattier things like meats usually that cause the problem. Deli meats, things like that. Cheeses, I don't even know how many people tell me that they give their dog cheese. But just trying to prevent some of those things. All right, for for my funny story, I'm going to tell you how I hurt my knee. So this is when I was younger, when I was in my, I want to say I was like 18 or something like that. I had worked at a farm, like this little farm in the middle of a giant city. Okay, like there weren't actually farms there, but there was this petting zoo that I worked at. And we had sheep and chickens and um, we had an iguana there was a pig. I can't remember what else there was. A llama, there was a llama there as well. And I had had this kid that ran up to me and asked me if they could pet the iguana. So I went to go open up the cage for the iguana to get her to get her out. And the kid like slammed the cage door open when I was trying to get her out cuz it's like one of those that flaps from the top down and he slammed the that door and as I was reaching in to get the iguana, one of the sheep rammed my knee, like went full force rammed into my, my knee. It was so, so painful. Oh my God, my left knee. And I kept like, I, don't know, I went to the doctor at this is kind of the funny part As I went to the doctor at the hospital when they sent me to, I think to, or to emergency, if I remember correctly, right after that, went into an emergency room and they asked me like how I hurt my knee Now, like, imagine you lived in Seattle and somebody said, I was hit by a sheep. That they would be like, what, what are you talking about? So it's kind of the same situation as in Anaheim. There was, there weren't like, there was no farms near me. The closest farm was maybe, I'd say two, an hour, maybe two hours away. So I walked in and I said, I got hit by a sheep. And they were just like, what? What do you mean you got hit by a sheep? I was like, I a sheep rammed into my knee, like I got hit by a sheep. So the nurse pops out, goes to get the doctor, the doctor comes in, he's like, Is it true that you got hit by a sheep? I was like, yes, the sheep rammed into my knee. And I it's freaking swollen and super painful. And he's like, okay. I just wanted to make sure, because I made a bet with somebody out there saying that there's no way you got hit by a sheep. And I was like, no, it I really got hit by a sheep. Like that's what happened. <laughs> now I need to be fixed. It hurts. So they were all just like dumbfounded about what to do and what happened. Unfortunately, after that, my knee would swell all the time, like constantly. At one point when I was in my 20s, it'd swell so badly, like I couldn't even get my my um, scrub pants on because it was so swollen. So it, I had gone to doctors many times telling them like, this is what happened. I got hit by a sheep. And after that, like I couldn't use my 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 knee very well anymore and I keep getting these this really bad swelling. They would do an MRI, nothing. Couldn't find anything. They were like, I don't know, it looks just fine. Maybe you have a little bit of arthritis. Maybe that's why. I'm like, I should not have that much arthritis at 20. So eventually I went to a sports medicine doctor. I told him what happened and I was like, I understand you don't do, you know, just normal things that aren't sports affiliated but I feel like this is very similar to like when somebody gets kicked in the knee or hit by a ball or something. And he was like, you're right. And I think that we should just go in and do, um, arthroscopy. So putting the camera in your knee He's like, I, there's no reason to do any more MRIs. Like you've done this so many times, nobody's found anything. Let's just go physically look at it. I was like, perfect. So I went into surgery. Um, and he asked me beforehand if I wanted to be awake for it. I was like, no, I don't want to be awake for it. Make sure I am asleep, dead asleep. I do not want to wake up during this procedure. He's like, well, some people like to watch. And I was like, no, I do not want to watch. I do not want to see what's happening. said, I do want, a, like they would videotape it. said, I do want to videotape of this, but please do not wake me up. So they do the surgery. They find out that it's like this weird little, the fat pad that you normally have in your knee was only hanging on by this tiny sinew of flesh and so every time I'd bend my knee, it would slam up against like all the rest of the uh, the joint there, and produce a ton of fluid, which was then causing this severe swelling. So they took out the little fat pad, so I don't have that anymore, and it has never swelled a day since then. Ever since then, it has been completely fine. But when you listen to the camera or to the tape of the camera from when they were doing the arthroscopy, you can hear the doctor talking to me and you can hear me talking back to the doctor. I was like, what? Super crazy. Like, I didn't even think to turn the volume up on it, but you can actually hear it. I would think that I would just like, you know, I wouldn't need any volume for it. I didn't think you could hear anything, but you can actually hear it super crazy. I don't think I talked about anything detrimental or anything, and maybe next time I'll talk about what happened after the surgery, but um, I think that's enough for now. All right, thank you guys, and I'm gonna try that other um, app later on and see if this works. All right, have a great day, guys.